You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, good day there. You can say hello, it's all right. There you go. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Tim, and uh, as you've just heard, next year we're going to be supporting six mission partners. Maybe just tuck that underneath your chair. Uh, I'll refer to it at the very end. Um, but I am particularly excited about supporting Living Water. As you've heard, they're uh, a church plant started at a similar time to us. They're particularly passionate about reaching the uh, indigenous population of sort of the, this area. Um, and we used to support them, stopped for a while, but we're uh, supporting them again next year, so which I'm excited about. But I want you to imagine that in response to our renewed financial partnership with Living Water, uh, the pastor sends us this email. I'm glad that at long last, after waiting all this time, you finally decided to think about me. Of course, I realise you were meaning to do it, you just could not get round to it. I hope you understand, however, that I do not really need the money. My circumstances do not bother me. I've learned to handle all kinds of situations. Nevertheless, it's a good thing you decided to send the money. I mean, for your sake, of course, not mine. Uh, you are really the ones that profit by sending an offering. How would you feel? It's slightly jarring, isn't it? He doesn't say thank you. Now, they haven't sent this, by the way. Just imagine. They haven't said thank you. Uh, it almost seems like they're doing us a favour in allowing to give to them, and it almost seems too proud to admit that the gift might actually help. I suspect that if we got a response like that, most of us would think it's at least a little bizarre, if not downright rude. Now, the reason I bring that up is that that is the way a lot of people think Paul is responding to the Philippians in today's passage. Uh, in fact, that quote that I just shared from you, with you is a caricature of Paul's response from one of the commentaries on this passage. They're like, this is basically what he sounds like. The thing is, the more I've reflected on this passage this week, the more I've come to see uh, kind of the, the wisdom and actually the power of what Paul says. And in fact, rather than getting angry at Paul, uh, the more I've read it, the more I've found my heart being softened and having a greater appreciation for the beauty of gospel partnership. See, I thought about uh, money probably this year far more than many years in the past. Uh, there's various reasons for that. We've sold a house, we've bought a house, uh, there's been the fastest rise in interest rates in three decades. Uh, you've probably noticed everything also seems to cost about 50% more than it used to. But what that's meant is that I found myself experiencing probably a, a more financial anxiety this year than I have in the past. And so I've been thinking things, you know, how many more rate hikes are we going to get? Uh, will I ever be able to afford lettuce again? Um, maybe I should buy a Tesla because petrol is so expensive, maybe it's a worthwhile investment. What's more, in my weaker moments, I've noticed that along with the anxiety has, has come a cooling of my heart. Uh, and probably, to be frankly honest with you, a, a, a reluctance to be generous. Now, that's not a good thing. I'm just telling you where I've been at. Um, it's not a good thing, partly because it's disobedient, but also because it's not the kind of person I want to be. 
I don't know about you, I don't want to be a penny-counting Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, the kind of person I want to be, the kind of person I think God wants me to be, is open-handed, open-hearted, just like he is. But again, uh, perhaps like me, you've found yourself a little anxious this year. If you have, then I want you to listen up. Because more than anything else, in the last few months, I think this passage has helped to actually just kind of soften my heart. And as I say, give, give me a fresh vision for the beauty of gospel partnership. And so my prayer is that it does the same for you. Uh, in terms of how we're going to spend our time today, I do want to finish by inviting you to partner with Grace City specifically. But I don't really want to sell you on the ministry today. I'm not really going to spend any time at all talking about the ins and outs of what we do. Um, I'll touch on this at the very end, but there's, there's, you know, most of the financial stuff is in there. Uh, if you come back next week, uh, you will see firsthand the fruit of what God has done in and amongst us as we hear the stories of people, as we see and get baptized. What I want to do today, though, is actually just spend the bulk of our time looking at God's Word. Uh, and the reason for that is that I am thoroughly convinced that it is only God's Word that has the power to soften our hearts, transform our lives, and make us more like an open-handed, open-hearted God. So to get started, I want you to come with me to Philippians 4 verse 10, because this is where we're going to get the question that I want to try and answer with you today. So Philippians 4 verse 10 says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, Paul speaks of renewed concern there because the Philippians had actually supported him multiple times in the past. He makes reference to that a little later on. But then they stopped for a reason. Now, we don't know exactly why they stopped, but they stopped. But what they've just done is kind of right as before Paul's written this letter, is he sent, they have sent him a big wad of cash by means of their messenger, a guy named Epaphroditus. Now, just so you can picture it. Uh, at the time of, oops, at the time uh, of receiving their support, Paul is a prisoner, so he's literally chained to a guard, and he's awaiting trial in ancient Rome. Now, the good news is, because he's a Roman citizen, he's able to endure his waiting for trial under house arrest. The bad news is, he's actually got to pay for the rent of the house as well as provide his food. You can get that from Acts 28 verse 30. So he's doing it tough. But how does Paul respond when Epaphroditus arrives with this fat water cash from the Philippians? Well, he says, I rejoiced greatly. Now, that word greatly in the Greek is this little word mega. In other words, this, this is not a small parting of the lips in a smile. Oh, that was nice. Uh, this is an over-the-top. This is an ecstatic. This is a mega rejoicing. But it leads to the question that I want us to explore today, and that is, why is Paul so happy? Why is Paul mega rejoicing? Because I think if we can answer that question, then it's not only going to soften our hearts, but I think we might also be able to experience the same kind of mega joy that Paul experiences and describes in this letter. And the good news is Paul's going to give us the answer in this passage. It'll come in three parts. That's what we're going to look at today, and I'll give it to you as we go. So why is Paul mega rejoicing? Reason number one, it's not about the cash. It's not about the cash. Why is Paul rejoicing? Well, first, it's not about the cash. You see, let's be honest. Uh, if you and I 
got a fat wad of cash. Now we don't know how much it is. Uh, we're supporting our mission partners some to ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Let's pretend it's ten to fifteen thousand bucks. Someone delivers that to you. How are you feeling? Pretty happy, right? You'd be excited, you'd be thinking, yes! Particularly if things are a little tough for you right now, you think, oh, thank goodness, praise God, now I can you know, pay the bills and now we can go out, now maybe even a little holiday. One of the remarkable things about this passage is the total disconnect between Paul's rejoicing and the money he's actually just received. Let me show it to you. Verse 12, 11 and 12, sorry. Paul says, I'm not saying this, why am I rejoicing? Well, it's not because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul starts by saying, look, I am mega happy, but it's not about the cash. Why? Well, I figured out how to be content, right? whether I got plenty or in poverty, whether I'm feasting or fasting, whether I got a lot of cash or a little cash, I know how to be content. And so when it comes to the gift, sure, uh, it's clear he appreciates. You notice he doesn't send the money back with Epaphroditus. <laughs> Nor do you get the impression he's sort of just thinking, oh, what do I do with this? I uh, guess I'll put it in the closet. Um, it's clear that he appreciates it, but he just wants to make it real crystal clear. It's not the gift that makes him, it's not the cash that makes him happy. Now, I want you to appreciate how pastorally wise it was of Paul to make that explicit. See, first time I read this, I kept getting a little bit angry at Paul. Kept thinking, man, Paul, are you trying to manage your own self-image here? Now, you wouldn't want the Philippians to think that you cared about money. Like, oh, he's not spiritual enough. But the more I thought about it, the more I become convinced that Paul's not doing it for his sake, he's doing it for their sake. You see, the Philippians, maybe like some of us, would have been experiencing a degree of financial anxiety. Do you remember last week? Paul says, it's okay. Don't be anxious about anything. At the end of today's passage, chapter 4, verse 19, he'll say, it's okay. My God will meet all your needs. Now, they would have been experiencing anxiety. And so Paul, what he does here is not just... Not just tell them to be content, he models contentment. He says, you know what, the secret to contentment is not the enjoyment of material abundance. The secret to contentment is not all you need to be content is just a little bit more. Because Paul gets more than a little bit more and he says, you know what, I appreciate it, but that, I was content without it. I was happy already. But what is, what is the secret? Well, he gives it to us in verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him, that is Christ, who gives me strength. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, uh, you'll probably be familiar with that verse. Uh, you can find it in picture frames, you can find it on mugs, you can find it on t-shirts, you can buy all of them from Kurong or most bookshops, uh, Christian bookshops. You occasionally see it painted on athletes as well or tattooed somewhere. Now, you, you know, who knows the precise reason that they're doing it, but you, you tend to get the impression that the thinking behind the verse is it, it, it's supporting the idea that with God's help, nothing is beyond my reach. So I can win this race, I can climb this mountain, I can conquer this obstacle, because I can do all things 
through God who gives me strength. Uh, the only problem with that is it's not really what Paul is saying. See, if you have an older translation, sometimes it would say, you know, I can do all things, which sort of leaves it quite open to the kind of things Paul's talking about. But you'll notice in our translation, they've changed it to this. Now, the word this or things isn't really there. It's just all. Paul says, I can do all. But the NIV, I think, helpfully includes this because it, it kind of makes it specific what he's referring to. He's talking about the things he's just said. I can be content in poverty and prosperity. I can be content when I've got nothing to eat, as well as when there's plenty of food on my table. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And therefore, somewhat ironically, the athlete who puts that on their jersey or whatever it is can't... is, is not really saying what they think they're saying. They think, I can do it all. I can win. Awesome. I can lose. Don't really care. I'll be content because I have Christ. Now, for Paul's first readers, that little bit at the end there would have come as a shock. I can do all things through Him. That is Christ who gives me strength. You see, contentment was uh, a supreme virtue for the Stoic philosophers in Paul's day. Uh, but they thought of contentment as something slightly different to what Paul thought of as contentment. See, for the Stoic philosophers, they believed you can't control what happens to you, which is fairly straightforward. And so therefore, what you have to do is really focus all your energy and attention on controlling how you respond to the external influences. You can't control what happens, but you can control how you respond. So really, you've you got to work hard at developing an inner resilience, an inner strength, the sort of this, this um, inner fortitude that will enable you to move through life with calm no matter what happens. That was what they called contentment. And so it's why you can get someone like Seneca. If you've heard of that name, he's kind of a contemporary of Paul. He actually dies three years after Paul, the apostle, writes this letter. Seneca was ordered by the emperor at the time to kill himself. He thought he was involved in sort of a, a rebellion or an assassination attempt. He was ordered by Nero to kill himself. And so how does he do it? He lies in a bath, slits his wrists calmly while surrounded by all his friends. The Stoics would call that contentment. It's this deep inner strength, this calm that enables you to face any of life's situations with peace. I want you to notice the difference between what the Stoics call contentment and what Paul calls contentment. Uh, Paul's not teaching self-reliance. He's teaching Christ-reliance. In other words, contentment for Paul is not about putting on a brave face and pretending everything is okay even when life is hard. Right, that's self-reliance. And frankly, it's not only unrealistic, it's also ungodly. What Paul is modeling, what he's teaching, is Christ-empowered contentment. A contentment that says, you know what, I actually don't have what it takes. I don't have the inner resources to be content in this situation. But Christ does. And so I'm going to rely on Him. I suspect you're going, okay, what exactly does that look like, Tim? Because I was thinking the same thing. 
that is a little harder to pin down. I kept thinking, oh, how would I put this in words? From what Paul says, it is clearly something you have to learn. Right? Paul says, I've learned the secret. That's helpful. It means it doesn't just sort of happen when you become a Christian. also means that if you found yourself discontent this year, I don't think you need to think God's over you standing there with a big thumb saying, no, 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 no. We need to repent, but it's a lesson. It, it's something we learn over time. And so I think together, if you're struggling with discontentment, let's together learn the secret of trusting in Christ. But in the interest of giving you something specific, let me put it like this. Uh, if you're struggling with any kind of discontentment right now, so maybe it's financial anxiety, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's unwanted singleness, maybe it's infertility, Maybe it's sort of a wayward kid or kids. Your temptation will be to put your hopes on a change of circumstances. In other words, you will find yourself daydreaming about an extra source of income or a raise or physical healing or you know, a loving Christian partner or a kid, a child or sort of a reconciliation with one of your kids. Now, each of those things are good. And frankly, if God gives them to you, rejoice in them as a good gift given you from your Heavenly Father. But here's the thing. As good as they are, they will not satisfy the thirst of your heart. Only Christ can do that. And so if you're struggling with discontentment, don't set your heart on a change of circumstances. Set your heart on Christ. And then receive whatever circumstance you find yourself in right now, whether it's hard or easy, as a gift from your loving Heavenly Father, trusting that He is going to use that through the Spirit for your good and His glory. I think that's the secret. So why is Paul so happy? Why is he mega rejoicing? Well, he starts by saying, you know what, at the end of the day, it's not about the cash. Because I was content before it arrived. All right. So why is he happy then? Well, he's going to give us two reasons. The first is that it's about the privilege of partnership. It's about the privilege of partnership. Um, right back at the start of the letter, Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 4 like this. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word partnership there is the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship, but it has this sense of a sharing in or a, a, a participating in something together. And so Paul has begun the letter by saying to the Philippians, you know guys, I rejoice that it, when, it, when it comes to the work of a gospel, you and I are in it together. And so if I can modernize it for a moment. Uh, Paul didn't do his ministry under the banner of, you know, pauloftarsusministries.com, <laughs> make a donation here. Uh, he was in partnership. And the Philippians were an integral member of the team. Or if, if I can change the illustration for a moment, and this one's for the Suits fans. Uh, if his ministry was a law firm, the sign in the lobby didn't read Pearson Spectre Lit. It's something like Paul, Timothy and Philippians. Right, they're partners in the ministry. Now, at an objective level, 
the Philippian partnership primarily took the form of financial support, right? They'd supported him in the past and they're starting to support him again. But at a subjective level, it's clear from what Paul says throughout the letter that the partnership of the Philippians meant so much more than simply their money to Paul. And I think you see that in today's passage as well. So having just said, you know, it's not about the money, I'm content. Look at how Paul next uh, begins in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now that word share is that same word, or at least it comes from the same root word, koinonia. It's that fellowship word, it's that partnership, that sharing word. And so Paul's saying, look, even though I have learned to be content, you didn't do the wrong thing in sending me money. Actually, you know what? It touched me. Why? Well, yeah, look, even though I would have been content without the cash, that was a sign that you guys are with me in the ministry together. We're partners. You see, a friend of mine from high school He's massive into running. Now, if you think you're big into running, I know we have a few runners here. you got nothing on this guy. Trust me. Listen. Earlier this year, he ran a 50K ultramarathon. Now you think, oh, that's not that much. Wait for it. A 50K ultramarathon in each of Australia's eight states in eight days, totaling 400 kilometres in eight days. He's a machine. <laughs> Uh, I followed the whole thing on Facebook. That was about as in involved as I got. <laughs> um, but what was particularly touching was the way that a bunch of his running buddies came and joined him for various stretches on the runs in each of the states. And so, for example, you know, he was in Brisbane and one of his running, running buddies sort of would come and, and join him, you know, maybe for a 20-kilometre stretch and then he's on his own and then another comes and joins him. And... Uh, there's a sense in which you could say they were sharing in his troubles. Now, I suspect he probably would have finished on his own, like he's just a machine. But you could tell from the Facebook posts how touched he was by the fact that others would come and join him. I can't help but wonder if that's kind of how Paul is feeling. Yeah, sure. He'd learned to be content, so he would have coped without the cash. But it sure was nice to know that others were with him in the ministry. In other words, the gift signaled to Paul that he had others with him in the race, cheering him on, standing right there with him. As we said a few times already, this isn't the first time. Right, he goes on. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me. That word shared, we'll come back to it in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Again, that word shared is that koinonia word, that partnership word, that fellowship word. What's the point? I guess what I'm trying to help us all see is that partnership in ministry is often just as much about fellowship as it is about finances. It's just as much about fellowship as it is about finances. See, when you give someone money, uh, whether it's a missionary or a church or you know, someone else, some other Christian organization, you're not just writing a check. Uh, it's not like money is just going from your bank account into theirs and then it's done. You're engaging, with fellowship. You're engaging in fellowship. You're joining the team, so to speak. 
You're getting behind them. You're standing with them. You're actually sharing with them in the ministry. I think, to be honest, this is most obvious when you're just supporting an individual because it's easy to have a relationship with an individual, you know, a family. So if it's a missionary or a Bible college student, an MTSer or some parachurch worker. If you do, by the way, just keep that in mind. You're, you're not just an ATM. You're a partner in the ministry. It's also true when you support the church. Uh, next week, as I said, we're going to see a couple of stories of people who have literally had their lives transformed in and around us over the last year. Now, you might not know all of them. Uh, you might not even know any of them. But it's actually only through the partnership of people just like you that any of these stories are really possible. And so when you come back next week, I want you to come with mega joy, <laughs> uber joy, because of the privilege that it is to partner with one another in this ministry here at Grace City. First reason Paul says he's so happy is just because of the privilege of sharing in the ministry. He's not alone. The Philippians are right there with him. Second, if you like our third point, it's the benefit of giving. The second reason that Paul is rejoicing is what I'm calling the benefit of giving. See, uh, Paul will use two different metaphors to describe giving in this passage, but it's interesting that he talks about it as a benefit, but in neither situation or neither example is the benefit going to the recipient. In other words, the, Paul gets the money, but he says at least two others benefit. The first is an economic metaphor, and it says basically the Philippians benefit. Let's look at it, verse 17. He says, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. In other words, Paul's got the gift... But he says, even though I get the gift, something's happening to your account. More is being credited. You know, other Bible translations, like the ESV, will say, uh, it's fruit that is increasing to your account. The Holman will say, profit that is increasing to your account. Um, commentaries actually go so far as to say, it's closer to the interest that's compounding to your account. At the end of the day, the precise thing probably doesn't matter. They're all saying the same thing in different words. And the idea that Paul says, you know what, I'm happy because even though, well, I'm happy not because it means more physical cash in my account, but because it means more spiritual cash in your account. You ever had a friend experience a sudden windfall? Like a financial windfall? I had a friend uh, who got a uh, $100,000 bonus. Maybe that's like, easy for you but <laughs> I, uh, I heard about this <coughs> excuse me I was a little bit jealous but I was mostly just excited for it. I just thought that's like cool good on you that's incredible uh, I wonder if that's what Paul's doing here you know through partnering with Paul the Philippians have just received a massive windfall in their spiritual bank account and so he rejoices with them. Now, it's just a metaphor, right? It is just a metaphor. And so it's more about the idea that it conjures up for us more than the mechanics. Like, I don't think we're supposed to go, hmm, I wonder what the interest rate is. <laughs> no, should we invest it in a term deposit? Or? It, it, it's about a, the big idea is that, you know what, for the Philippians, hey, uh, even though you have become materially poorer through giving to Paul, you've become spiritually richer. So Paul says, I rejoice. 
Now, uh, if the economic metaphor makes you feel, I don't know, queasy, you're like, oh, money, it's not spiritual, or it's, you know, it's mammon, or it feels almost self-interested, you know, oh, you're only giving to me so that you can get in your spiritual bank account. I want you to remember that Jesus uses this kind of economic metaphor as well. So in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know the passage, I suspect. Jesus says a similar thing. It's Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now again, the idea, I don't think, is that there is a literal treasure chest in heaven where if you give a dollar on earth, you get a dollar in heaven. I don't think that's the mechanics of how it all works. It's about an idea. It's about a point. It's communicating something. I think the point comes at the end. That's the punchline. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if all the stuff you value, if your treasure is here on earth, that is where your attention is going to be focused. That is where you're going to put your energy towards. That's what you're going to think is going to make you happy. But if your treasure, so to speak, is in heaven, that's where you're going to put your energy, your focus. That's what your drive is going to be towards. So yeah, as a little side point this on this, I think one of the remarkable things about Christian giving, when it's done well, because I think we can do it poorly. We can give out a guilt or feel pressured to give. I think when Christian giving is done well, it is a kind of spiritual warfare. You are engaging in spiritual warfare. Why? I think all of us are going to struggle with worldliness in one way or another. We're all going to be tempted to think that you know, we're just a little bit more here. This is where we'll find joy and satisfaction. But when a Christian, well, Christian giving is a way of proactively fighting against that pull. And so when a Christian shares what God has given them with others, they are loosening the fingers of their heart from around the treasures of this world and trying to fix them on Christ and His kingdom. So I, I will move on in a second, but let me just try and apply this for a moment. I think those of us who are most reluctant to give are those who most need to give. Let me say it again. I think those of us who are most reluctant to give are those of us who most need to give. Why? Well, when are we most reluctant to give? Speaking from personal experience, I am most reluctant to give when the fingers of my heart are most closely wrapped around the things of this world. When I'm convinced that that's what's going to make me happy, that's where I'll feel secure. Which isn't a great place to be. Because <laughs> remember, Jesus, you cannot serve two masters. Either serve God or money, you can't do it both. And so again, I, might I suggest that if you are feeling within your heart a reluctance to give this year, you know, inflation, interest rates, whatever, might I suggest that maybe this year, possibly more than any other year, is the year where giving is going to be most necessary for your ongoing spiritual health as a disciple. Because it is an act of spiritual warfare. Let me move on. Second metaphor. Second metaphor this time is a sacrificial one. 
Remember, it's the benefit of giving. There's a sense in which Paul will say, your giving benefits God. Let me show you. Uh, Philippians 4.18. This says, I've received full payment, have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Listen. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, that first bit is just you know, another threefold clarification. I don't need any more. Right? I got all the money. It's more than enough. Good stuff. I'm not asking for more. And then he uses his sacrificial metaphor. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Uh, most of us are probably associate sacrifices with the atonement of sin. Um, it's a good instinct. Uh, that's a lot of what the sacrifices did in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that not all the sacrifices were about atonement. And so if you go back and read Leviticus 3... You read about this thing called the fellowship offering, sometimes called the thanksgiving offering. And from what we can tell, the main reason you would offer the thanksgiving offering is simply to worship God and make Him smile. It is an act of gratitude. It's an act of fellowship with the God that you love because you know He wants it. It makes Him happy. Paul says, that's what your financial giving is like. It's not a sacrifice of atonement, right? That was Christ dying on the cross in your place for your sins. But it's a bit like a fellowship offering. Because when you gave it, Philippians, God smiled. Gracie, I hope you're starting to see that giving a church is about so much more than meeting a budget. You know how most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, I get up here and do a finance update once a quarter and... I have that little line, you know, let's talk about the finances and let's talk about the spiritual side of things. So much of giving is not about the cash. It's about the privilege of partnership and sharing in the ministry together. It's about storing up treasure in heaven and fighting against the worldly inclinations of our heart that are constantly convinced we'll be happy with just a little bit more. And it's about the beauty of worshipping God and just making Him smile. And so as I close, let me invite you to partner with us. Uh, You don't have to get this out because I'll bring some stuff on the screen, but most of what I'll talk about is here. Uh, Next year, we do need a little bit of cash. It sort of is about the cash. (laughs) Next year, we're seeking to raise $1.14 million from the generosity of our members. And so... As this little um, graph in the brochure will will show, that 1.14 is a fairly modest increase on our forecast for this year and pretty in line with what we've received in the past. All that's trying to say is that it it is wise financial stewardship. We're not expecting something ridiculously extravagant and beyond what we've seen in the past. Uh, Second of all, with this one, you might be coming, well, how's that money going to be spent? Quickly on the number in the middle, you'll notice that's more than 1.14. That is because we also receive a little bit on top of the 1.14, if you like, uh, from rental income and from various events throughout the course of the year. So how is that money going to be spent? Well, what we're proposing is about 55% of that will go towards staffing. That's that kind of big... It's all blue, isn't it? The one at the bottom? (laughs) Half donut at the bottom? 
Uh, that includes an additional day in next-gen, half an MTS wage, as well as uh, all the usual things. Uh, the other major investment is up the top left, which is in the facilities fund. Now, I know that, uh, certainly if you've been around for a while, I will sound like a broken record here, uh, but there, uh, we've been looking for some additional space for a while, actually for years. Uh, there has been some significant movement on that front in the last few months, but at this stage, I still can't share anything concrete. Uh, the good news is that it seems almost certain that we will have some much more space for us to move into as a church in about five years' time, which obviously means, gosh, what are we going to do in the next five years? Well, that's a live question. Uh, we are exploring it right now. There's a few different options. As I say, it's live, and so rather than me sort of sharing some stuff now, uh, we should have a much better answer on that before the end of the year. So maybe just watch this space. I hope to come back and update you with a little bit more on that front. But for now, let me uh, formally, if you like, invite you into gospel partnership with Grace City in 2023. Uh, in terms of what I'm actually asking you to do, I want you to make it a financial pledge. A financial pledge at some point in the next two weeks. Financial pledge. Now, um, you can do that by filling out an on online form. Uh, you can get that form either by scanning that QR code or going to the web address. But if you're thinking, well, what exactly is a financial pledge? A financial pledge is, maybe the best way to put it is, it's almost like a letter of intent. In other words, you're not actually giving anything when you pledge. You're really just saying, hey, under God and with His help, I or we um, are hoping and prayerfully considering and intending to donate this amount of money. Now, importantly, you hear me, the pledge is 100% optional. Let me eyeball all of you. The pledge is 100% optional. But I want to encourage you to do it for two reasons. First, it's helpful for church. In other words, it actually just does sort of help us sort of make informed decisions about next year and have a reasonable idea of what we can expect. But the second reason, actually, this is far more significant, is that I'm genuinely convinced it's helpful for you. See, let me use myself as, a, as an example. Uh, my thinking about the spiritual significance of money and generosity is rarely clearer than at this time of the year. Why? Because if you've been around for a while, you know this time of the year, every year, I get up and talk about money. And I guarantee you, before you hear about it, I've got to do all the work on my own heart. Which means each year now is about the time where I'm thinking most biblically about money. Because I spent weeks in God's Word on it. With that in mind, now is the time I want to make the decisions about how our family is going to make use of the money that God has provided. And what's more, the act of submitting the pledge, it does mean I'm accountable to someone, by which I mean someone else actually knows what our family is going to pledge next year. Now, of course, it's not a contract, right? So if our circumstances change, we can change things. No one's going to chase us for the difference. But at least for me, it does mean that if my heart cools later in the year, frankly, like it did this year, there is just that extra little bit of accountability for me to remind me, to prompt me, if you like, not to, 
to keep my eyes fixed on Christ and not to believe the lie that I will be secure, I will be happy with just a couple of extra dollars in my bank account. And so that's why we're going to make a pledge. And you might want to do it too. Lastly, how much should you give? Well, uh, Emma and I are going to do what we always do and what we've done since the very start of church. Uh, We uh, give 10% of our combined income to church and then we give over and above that to other causes. In terms of what you do, I invite you, encourage you to do the same, but ultimately that's going to be a decision you need to make between you and before God. As you do, let me encourage you to seek God's guidance on that decision. And as you're doing it, here's my encouragement. Don't sit down just with a calculator. I do think you probably need a calculator, but don't just sit down with a calculator, sit down with a cross. See, the Old Testament, uh, God commanded his people to give 10%. They had to give 10% to the temple. That, for them, was a matter of obedience. In the New Testament, that principle of the tithe, the 10%, it's actually superseded, it's replaced by the principle of sacrificial generosity. The thing is, it's a generosity modeled on the generosity of Jesus Christ, who, who didn't just tithe his life, he gave his life. At the cross, Jesus died in the place of people like you and I to forgive our sins, to save us from the judgment of God and to bring us into his family. And so I'll say again, what you give is a decision you need to make between yourself and God. As you sit down, don't just sit down with a calculator, sit down with a cross. And remember what God has given to you as you consider what you are going to give to God. As you do, let me leave you with this promise from the end of our passage. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Why don't you join me? Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an abundantly generous and gracious God who has given us so much more than we deserve. Lord, spiritually speaking, we are bankrupt. And yet your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through him we might become rich. We thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we ask uh, for each of us here, as we consider how it is that we are going to use the resources that you have entrusted us with next year, that you would help us to be generous, open-hearted, open-handed, just like you are. Not because we think that's how we earn your favor, but because we know we already have it, because of the gospel, and because it makes you smile. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.